You're listening to On the Path, Episode 2, with Charlie Kyle, Zach Rudis, and John Grosowskis. Wonderful. And we've been chatting about division of labor as an issue that needs airing out, and that fits with what I happen to bring through the door here in the way of a quotation from Larry Slobodkin. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name since I've just came upon his wisdom. And How do you spell that? S-L-O-B-O-D-K-I-N. He was a very distinguished ecologist, worked most of his life at Stony Brook, had a department there on ecology and evolution, and helped a lot of very important graduate students become ecologists with a good point of view. And here was his advice on career path. What do you do as an ecologist? I think it applies to everybody. Um, My own advice on career development is that there are three career paths open and it is wise to excel at one of them, colon. The first is to become an expert on some group of organisms that excites you. Second, you could become very good at the most popular current techniques at the highest technical level you can imagine. In contrast, you can take the third and most dangerous path. You can strenuously avoid doing what everyone else is doing and search for new ideas and new tests for old ideas. I especially like that last new tests for old ideas. Constantly reimagining or re-envisioning what Karl Marx said about um, inequality or equality as a touchstone or the base determines superstructure or any of the Marxist basic principles. Dialectical materialism, how do you do dialectics in your daily life? How do you do materialist explanations of things that have come down to us as idealism or idealist ideas? How do you test those in terms of material conditions? All the most basic and now, what, two centuries old Marxist principles um, need testing, you know, retesting. How do we do this in a microcosm and local small piece economies and so on? How does Marxism fit with that and so on? I'm interested in maybe taking these taking these ideas and applying them to the to a case study of music. Mm-hmm. So, when we talk about division of labor or specialization, how could we how could we think that through using music as a template? Or we could take someone like John, for example, who is both a multi instrumentalist, but also has a specialization in guitar. So I'd be curious as to hear how he or how you deal with that, John, or how you think about that as someone who has logged so many hours with the guitar above all else, but with chops on many instruments. How I think about the division of labor? Or specialization. Specialization. Like, if you could could, uh, redistribute your hours of musical practice and training and acquired knowledge... If you could take 1,000 hours of guitar practice and put them elsewhere, would you do it? Would you put 1,000 hours towards piano? Probably not. Um, 
pianos are hard to move around. Uh, impractical. <laughs> uh, right. No, I think I like being a hack of all trades. I think I like um, having a little knowledge of each rather than being a master of any of them. It just kind of lets, it's more fun. You can jump around and jam sessions and try different stuff. Um, I think it's important for everyone to have a little bit of drumming skills. Any musician should definitely, rhythm is sort of the core of it all. Um, I, I still, you know, uh, plan to practice more guitar and get more serious and get better because I do want to be better than I am. But, um, uh, I think I, it's like when you think of a video game statistic, when you're picking your character, you know, some, they have little bar graphs for their strengths and weaknesses. Like I wouldn't have a particular high bar on anything, but I'm, I guess I'm versed in a few instruments, which is, so I'm, uh, uh, useful in that sense so no i think i i like where it's at but i do need to apply myself a little more to guitar work right does that answer your question well sort of yeah because it you've sort of expressed the idea that specialization is valuable to you as a professional musician i don't know well i don't know if you really said that from a professional standpoint or from a creative standpoint or from or from both but it seems that in your answer that specialization is valuable to you. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's probably more valuable professionally than being versed in a lot of instruments. So yeah, there's always that desire to improve, become more skilled, become more fluent, more fluid, more speedy, whatever it is with the guitar, with the fretboard. You notice that Slobodkin there in his three-pronged approach to career development, he puts knowing about one thing and being an expert in that and that's kind of the first thing he thinks of is really being good at something and then well there's this other way of going to the latest techniques Hmm. and then this third way of proving or trying to disprove or invent a new idea and prove it or you know that's a the third and dangerous path Mm -hmm. but it's that's the path of the generalist to look at the whole spectrum of instruments you can choose from. I love what you said, Johnny, about um, being a hack of all tra- <laughs> of all trades. The the you know Mozart was a hack. Shakespeare was a hack. Mm-hmm. They both were in it for the money at a certain very early point in their lives. And he Shakespeare knocked off four or five plays a year to keep the the audience coming, to keep those people coming through the gate. Um, you could knock out a play like Hamlet or whatever in five weeks. He was in it for the for the gate for the the guy with the time. The, what, what did James Brown have? He had this guy when the first time I went to a James Brown concert. There was a guy at the gate there for James. Click 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 click. Who's coming through the doors? Getting a, a head count to make sure that James was getting the right amount of money for his performance. Mm -hmm. And that that was Brown's man, not the management's man, making sure that he wasn't going to be cheated on his. Smart. You know, it's like uh, division of labor. Who's who's counting the gate? Who's doing this? Who's doing that? That's one way to look at collaboration, is that there's a division of labor in any collaboration. Somebody's bringing a little bit more math in the yeah. science world and somebody's Absolutely. bringing a little bit more evolutionary everyone theory. has their strengths and i think right. that's a big thing in education children are often if they don't fit into the mold of the curriculum 
you know, they are deemed, you know, behind or special needs or, but every child is different, has different strengths and okay, maybe they're not <clears throat> excelling in English class or math class, but maybe they're really creative or they're a dancer or they're, right. you got to find each kid's passion and foster and facilitate it and not just try to fit them all into the same mold. We have to look at society like that, that it's all about collaboration and some people are good at some things, some people are good at others. Finding those strengths and watering them rather than, oh, this person is behind because right. they don't, you know. And stressing the weaknesses is always detrimental. Yeah. And that This is what stopped what was about to be a big success for Muse Incorporated in Buffalo. We were trying to get mentoring going of older children teaching younger children, sixth graders working with kindergartners on dance steps, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And I'd go and I'd say, look, you've got some terrific dancers now. We've been at you at your school for two years, and we've seen young men and women who are really going to be great dancers if they want to be. And they both they all know how to drum, and they're singing as needed. Can't we get those people down to the kindergarten and first graders? That's what I'm trying to accomplish here is get mentoring and internal creation in a one school, one institution. Can we have people mentoring down the line and bringing along these very young kids to be great dancers and drummers and singers just a few years from now? And they said, well, these people you've picked out, they've each got a, a problem or another. They're not good at math or they're not good at this. And so they need their study hall time. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, they don't need study hall time. They need creative cooperation, helping little kids to become skilled time. Better they should be learning how to teach than being perpetual students and always inadequate. Mm-hmm. You know, kids and I couldn't sell strong. that. I couldn't sell it to the principal or the vice principal. And similarly, when you have really talented people going into schools, artists and residents or whatever, very often they're kept in a corner. They're not, or they're over-distributed. Everybody's got to get a little piece of this visiting artist and nobody gets the whole person. Nobody gets the, the, the impactful message that somebody might bring to a situation. It's like, all right, back to math class, everyone. You've had enough art for the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And they, it's like supervising a balance so that everybody gets exposed, one of my most hated words, exposed to music, exposed to art. They don't participate in it necessarily. They learn to appreciate and applaud the sculptor or, you know, you know they enough see it about it. The glass, but they don't engage with it. Yeah. And not engaging, not participating, I think is death of the mind. You know, it's like you can watch it, but you can't do it. We had an awful lot of watching going on and not as much doing as we need. So the division of labor is, it's important. I think of it as a comb. You're trying to build your comb to be idiosyncratic. You know a hell of a lot about this and this, and then something down the other end of the comb is three or four prongs, and you got some gaps in your comb that some collaborator is going to help you fill in, and you're combing reality with these special corners of your of your operation your process but you're you're going to come up with a different version because of your comb your toolkit is different 
So helping to diversify a toolkit, knowing a little about a little bit about every instrument, you know, whatever what instrument haven't you played, and what could it tell you maybe about uh, the sounds you're looking for that you can now get on a synthesizer, I suppose, any way you want it. But what do you want? What do you want to be your sound, your way of putting sounds together? Each individual has to be asked that question. You know what I mean? How do you want it to sound? I think it's difficult that we, whether we like it or not, we're often forced to, we're forced to deal with our own creativity uh, as an overlay over over capitalism. Mm-hmm. So what is what is playing music? Well, playing music is playing music until when? Until it's time to get paid for the gig, and that presents a whole plethora of complexities and mm-hmm. I think about that a lot with you John when I've thought about Le Special and the fact that you're a professional musician and the ways that you have to conform to this thing that you didn't create and you didn't ask for when you were a 14 year old kid learning to pluck away at strings and playing Rage Against the Machine songs on drums so you're saying um, creativity is allowed to exist in that it contributes to, or uh, in the capitalistic structure, like, or like if we come back to specialization, for example, like is capital is capitalism or the structure of 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 the touring music industry, uh, is that pushing you, nudging you, or forcing you towards specialization? If you didn't have the economic imperative in your life of maybe being a guitarist or being some or a synth player slash guitarist, mm-hmm. would you explore other avenues more freely? Right. The stress might be less on specialization and more on enjoyment and collaboration. And you know, you don't need to be a virtuoso virtuoso to sit around the campfire and connect with your neighbors. Right. You know? Yeah. It's fun to be able to impress your neighbors and family members, <laughs> but with your newest lick or whatever. But yeah, I do think, I don't think it's a bad thing, you know, this whole guitar virtuosity thing and pushing each other to new levels of human achievement. But at the end of the end of the day, I'm with Chuck in that it's sort of a rough around the edges, ragtag, all inclusive format for musicking that I think is the most fulfilling, most gratifying. Yeah, that's that's what I missed in the, the little jazz concert that was just here. Mm-hmm. It was so wonderful for me to hook up with uh, Steve Swallow again after a, you know only a couple of get-togethers over a 50-year period. He came to Buffalo a couple of times and we could hang out and talk. But um, it was, it's been, what, three or four of those conversations and a couple of phone calls over the years. That's very limited engagement with somebody who I really treasured Mm. in that summer that we played together all summer and had some amazing experiences together. And I I wonder about Steve and complete pros. You know, they get so good at what they're doing that it becomes a kind of a limit on their um, spontaneity. After a while, you know, you get to be our age. We're both in our 80s. He's one year younger than I am. 
He showed up at Yale as a freshman when I was a sophomore, and we immediately had a kind of rapport about how to keep a rhythm section going. But he loves certain kinds of poetry and spent a lot of time thinking about what is good poetry, a big Robert Creeley fan. That's why he came to Buffalo the last time. And having that you know, connection to poetry, connection to politics, to religion, all keeping it all afloat, so to speak, being a whole person, a generalist, rather than a division of labor specialist. I think that's crucial. It was crucial for all those New Orleans musicians who were barbers by day or bricklayers or plasterers or, you know, they all had a skill, a day gig. They did their music at night and on weekends. And all the musicians were um, versatile 100 years ago. If you were a cello player, you also played trombone. If you were a violinist, you played cornet for outside work, for brass band work. I did a little article on that for um, Allegro, I think it's called, the local 802 magazine. They, they all doubled twice. You know, you double cello and trombone or bass and tuba, and you also have a gig as a printer by day and a musician on weekends or if there's an opportunity at a theater before the talking movies came in. There were a lot of working musicians who still had two gigs. Mm -hmm. They'd do the film thing in the afternoon and the evening, and then they'd be doing printing or taking a shift at the printing shop or whatever day gig you happen to have. That makes me think, that makes me kind of imagine a spectrum of um, how segmented are our lives. And how, mm -hmm. where does music, for example, we'll just say music for now, uh, what place does music occupy in a life? Is it something that's other time, like now's music time and the rest of the time's lifetime? Or is it your profession? Is it, is it in that middle ground? Or is it seamlessly a part of your day? Could music be spontaneous at uh, sunrise, midday, sundown, middle of the night. So there's, right. a, there's a thousand shades on that line. Right. And either of you I guys... I wonder about where we're at. <laughs> did, either, did either of you guys look at um, my music? The, the yeah. book that we did with uh, has 40-odd people from little kids to elders uh, responding to the basic question what's music about for you mm -hmm. it is such a spectrum of mm. responses and i we had did over 200 interviews undergraduates going out and doing the interviews and graduate students editing and trying to figure out how to position them and so on and we had over 200 interviews and none of them with the exception of two or three grateful deadheads who who specialized in the generality of the dead I'm glad I put it that way. They were they they gave me maps of all the different music that went into the Grateful Dead mix, from bluegrass to rock to rhythm and blues, rock and you know everything. Jug bands, jug jazz. bands, and and tunes from everywhere. And the, the Grateful Dead are the total totality of music. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd have to say, well, guys, there's 99 percent of the other world music, you know. Uh, 
<laughs> that's not Grateful Dead. But they had this notion that within the Grateful Dead world, everything was summarized. There was a total evolutionary trip to the... That sounds, that's, that sounds like religion to me. Yeah, well, they, they were the ones who were a little bit of a tribe, you know, that they, yeah. they had their own. Otherwise, every single person that we interviewed, we interviewed a little Indian girl from the reservation down on Skajakwita or some creek or someplace where she was coming from, and she was a total Muddy Waters fan. And then there was a, a, what we called the punkette, and neither one of them got into the book. The punkette as we called her, had different kinds of DIY punk bands that I'd never heard of. And she said, when I'm in a sad mood, I put on these tapes. When I'm in a really happy mood, I, I go to these three bands. Music when as I, medication. Yeah, as well, it was regulator. like I used this spectrum of what we would all put in one little corner of punk circa 1983 or something. And... She had a, a different, she th distinguished four different streams of music for four different personal needs that she had. So it was a kind of complete world with subdivisions, a division of labor or a division of, you know, intensity for this, for this, for this, for this. All worked out in her head. And a lot of people were like that. They had whole worlds of musicking that were almost always talking about records and recordings and very little about their own personal music making. Even people who are good at music and doing in a band or whatever would talk about music in this big, broad sense and we're into everything kind of um, in different reasons for being into these different kinds of music. So there's... What can I, the point I'm trying to make, I think, is that division of labor is one thing and division of response, that people divide the world into different kinds of musicking for different occasions, different moods that they're in. It's a, it's a really interesting, the whole notion of division. It makes me think of it's how... It's really interesting. It makes me think of how um, some people, when they use music to treat mood mm -hmm. uh i feel sad so i'm gonna put on something sad and indulge or i feel sad i'm gonna put on jimmy cliff and mm -hmm. blow the roof off my sadness <laughs> uh there's like home there's like a homeopathic music treatment there's aggressive counter my mood music treatment there's there's everything right People are people are using music in, in so many ways. Yep, and that, that's what the book revealed was that this unlimited ways to be musical and to internalize all the different kinds of music that there are around you for your own purposes, for very idiosyncratic purposes. I couldn't believe, you know, some of these interviews we'd sit as professor and graduate students and just marvel at what uh, somebody had said that was um, so insightful or so revealing of their own unique path in the world. So I, I see this as a constant. Johnny, your first answer to his first question was really great because it was like, yes, get as good as you can get on one thing, which is also slow. What's his name? Slobodkin. <laughs> Slobodkin's.
formula. Really know one group of organisms that excites you, right? It's exciting for you to really get good on the guitar. Oh, I can do that George Benson thing. I'll do it. Or I can do this, or I can do that. Finding different things in other guitarists and celebrating it. You know, I hear something I can do with a guitar and my voice at the same time. Why not? And you've gotten really good at that. Your question to Johnny about um, being a solo act and being successful at that and being in a trio and doing work with the children, you know, play with the children. Um, And that's another thing I want to get back to is work as a, a division of labor thing. And that's very oppressive, I think, mostly the time for most people. But um, the fact that he can do the solo thing and make money, the trio requires a whole lot more work and, you know, moving and touring and packing and unpacking equipment, etc. A lot of moving parts. Yeah, a lot of moving parts and a lot of sacrifice of time, energy, to get out there to people when he was touring. I was always saying, Johnny, come home, sit here. Work with the children, do your. And now that I know he could make pretty good money as a solo performer, it seems to me like the the trio should strictly be a recording exercise. You know, you try to get to the next level of what you can do in a recording studio in hopes of getting a record that everybody wants to listen to or a, a sound that. That's very. It's it's a very shifting landscape. Yeah. Obviously, John knows more more about it than than we do in 2020 mm-hmm. but uh i mean where uh, my my perception of it if you had asked me five years ago what's up with the music industry i would have i would have guessed that selling albums is dead mm-hmm. you make money by touring and if you had asked me two months ago i'd say i don't know where the money comes from because you can't tour anymore Right. Is that accurate, John? Mm-hmm. So people are trying to stream, do virtual concerts, teaching more, that kind of thing, selling merchandise. Right. Major faux pas. <laughs> That's nice drumming. <laughs> I wouldn't call that a faux pas in our podcast. What That's is, just a chance happening. What is that drumming, John? Good question. Oh. <laughs> Does that mean we're t- time out timed out? We are not timed out. We are at twenty seven minutes. Oh, okay. Good. So I figured for those people who don't know Charlie, we did, we kind of jumped right in last week. We didn't give any sort of background. Uh, mm. Charlie's a published author. He's an ethnomusicologist. He was a professor at SUNY Buffalo for years. He's interviewed everyone from BB King to Malcolm X. Um, I was actually in college and one of my music professors handed me an article that was written by Charlie and Angie. Um, so he's, you know, he's out there, uh, his writings and his thoughts. Um, so he just referred to his book, My Music, which is exploring, uh, um, how music, the, the role music plays in different people's lives, different ages, um, different walks of life. So you can Google Charlie Kyle. It's spelled K-E-I-L to learn more about his uh, 
his philosophies, and more recently he's been working on his book Born to Groove, which is all about the importance of children um, gaining rhythmic skills, dance movement skills, anything that makes them feel sort of fully alive and fully expressive, connected and participating and collaborating, which has had a huge effect on me and the music seller where you're hearing this podcast from. One of our biggest goals is to combat feelings of inadequacy, like Charlie mentioned earlier, which is something I wanted to return to, that many kids feel inadequate if they can't fit into the um, standard curricula format and structure offered in mainstream school systems. Um, Chuck, what can that do to a kid, do you think, if they constantly are feeling inadequate or behind this feeling not part of, not with it, not in the in-group, not in the in-crowd, not fully participating, this is what comes up at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, at Al-Anon meetings, mm-hmm. at all the 12-step programs, are in a sense combating that feeling of not belonging, of not being part of, of being on the margins, of not feeling yet your you know the, your process your personal process and this school or this sunday school or this um you know whatever institutions you come up against or are being encouraged to get into and do well in it's it's the um the disease of our times alienation you know feeling under the way other, a lot of people the cliche that you hear in aa is uh, not comfortable in my own skin, not and not being part of this, 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 or this. You know, it's not bringing out the best in me. It's making me feel like I'm a marginal, inadequate, not up to it, substandard, all of that stuff. And it's that's the the division of labor, if you will, of dumbing down. What does it What does it mean to be dumbed down? It's mean, meant to be, you're not a good at this. You're not so good at that. You're not, a, no, you're not doing well here either. You know, you go from one class to another and being told that you're not up to snuff, you internalize that if you're a little kid. That's fascinating. So, so human, it's a very basic human need to feel connected, part of something. I would and say if it's we don't the most receive basic. that, I agree. Yeah. If we don't receive that, it could manifest as trying to fill that void with substance abuse or right and we're dealing mental mental health professionals have been sounding the alarm really since i mean it seems to it seems to correlate rather well to uh the smartphone uh but many 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 young people dealing with serious anxiety issues mental health issues right and i think what the doctor the good doctor charlie kyle is prescribing is uh, a good medicine to combat that kind of social isolation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. isn't that interesting we've, we've never been more connected but also simultaneously disconnected from each other right um and the covid amplifies that oh yeah i keep thinking that covid is a gift it's Maybe. a it's a wake-up <laughs> call you cannot invade these rainforests and not get sars mers hiv aids on and on and on. There's 20, now 25 or 30 stuff that viruses that used to be in 
reservoirs in one animal or another, domesticated or wild. And now the, 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 these viri, plural, that's not in the dictionary. They don't want to pluralize virus. But there's so many of them, and they're in so many different creatures, and they're spilling from domesticated to wild to, to humans. I was listening to a, a podcast on the way here, um, the Ezra Klein Show, and he was interviewing someone who, has a, who just finished putting together um, a podcast called Future Perfect. And so I heard a sample of the Future Perfect episode, and what they're talking about is um, factory farming of animals. Got to go. And how Can't much of it. a threat that is. Not, I mean, not, talking, not just talking about animal welfare. In terms of pandemics, viruses, this is a nightmare. Yep. The CDC tracks, uh, tracks potential threats. They said seven out of the top ten infectious disease threats are zoological. Right. And we want to we slam the Chinese wet market. Uh, they've got all these weird animals that we wouldn't eat. Well, what about when you have three million pigs in little pens mm-hmm. chewing each other's tails off? Right. That's and a danger. De-beaked chickens crammed yep. next to each other. The factory farming, and that's why I think one of my favorite current authors, um, Wallace, Roderick Wallace and his son, Rob, they are two people in the midst of Monthly Review, the left monthly, who are just, I don't know how to describe it, not succumbing to the division of labor, right? They're thinking politically, economically, um, philosophically, mathematically. Roderick Wallace puts everything in mathematical formulas in relationship to covid and the two of them, Rob titles his book, Big Farms Make Big Flu. Mm. And they make big big viral damage and chaos for the entire planet. And it all could be stopped if we stopped invading the rainforests. That would stop the spillage of viruses from wild to domesticated, from domesticated to wild, from mammals to birds, from birds to us, from mammals to, you know what I mean? Yep. It, there's this constant overlap of... of but of, even even if we get out of rainforests and continue factory farming, right. let's say just in continental America or China or what have no you... No more monocropping, the, period. The, um, the antibiotic situation is mm-hmm. a cocktail for disaster. Right. The fact that we're giving well, it's you know seventy to eighty percent of antibiotics in the United States are being fed to factory farmed animals, and then end up in the water supply. In the water supply, yeah. in your body. Yep. Yeah. Uh, like plastic in the water, in the air, little minute particles of plastic is are everywhere. Um, when I first looked at a farm, I was thinking of buying a farm up in just across the border in Massachusetts on the Housatonic River, and then I went and did a little research on PCBs. Do a little research on PCBs. Thank you, General Electric. <laughs> so the Housatonic River is our local uh, waterway here, which was polluted in the 70s and 80s by General Electric and Pittsfield Mass right. in their production of electronics and televisions. And PCBs, which stands for polyphenols. You, you can't pronounce it. You don't need to pronounce it. It lives in the sediment 
and in the mud, and you're not supposed to eat the fish out of the Housatonic River anymore. I did a fair and it's deal in the of swimming air. in it as a kid, and yeah. I'm okay. Um, <laughs> Johnny's twitching. But monocultures, you mentioned, I know my professor, Milford Graves, would always talk about how it's dangerous to... He's like, man, plants don't grow like that in the bush. And if you look at his garden, everything's on top of everything. There's plants coexisting with each other, different species, different yep. types of plants, all together in one. And anytime you isolate things and synthesize things, and it can get dicey. Right. So I think that goes to what you were saying about monoculture. I did want to return quick to the importance of uh, children feeling engaged. Um, my absolute favorite TED Talk was Sir Ken Robinson. Uh, Sir Ken Robinson did a talk called Do Schools Kill Creativity? And I just wanted to read a short anecdote from that. Um, the little girl. Little girl Jillian. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. I thought about that before. She said, uh, this little girl Jillian, the school wrote to her parents and said, we think Jillian has a learning disorder. She couldn't concentrate. She was fidgeting. I think now they'd say she had ADHD, wouldn't you? But this was the 1930s, and ADHD hadn't been invented at this point. It wasn't an available condition. People weren't aware they could have that. Anyway, she went to see this specialist. So this oak-paneled room, and she was there with her mother, and she was led and sat in this chair at the end and she sat on her hands for 20 minutes while this man talked to her mother about all the problems she was having at school and at the end of it because she was disturbing people her homework was always late and so on little kid of eight in the end the doctor went and sat next to Jillian and said Jillian I've listened to all these things that your mother told me and I need to speak with her privately he said wait here we'll be right back we won't be very long and they went and left her but as they went out the room he turned on the radio that was sitting on his desk and when they got out of the room he said to her mother just stand and watch her and the minute they left the room, she said, she was on her feet, moving to the music. And they watched for a few minutes, and he turned to her mother and said, Mrs. Lynn, Jillian isn't sick. She's a dancer. <laughs> Take her to a dance school. I said, what happened? She said, she did. I can't tell you how wonderful it was. We walked in this room, and it was full of people like me, people who couldn't sit still, people who had to move to think, who had to move to think. They did ballet, they did tap, they did jazz, they did modern, they did contemporary. She was eventually auditioned for the Royal Ballet School. She became a soloist. She had a wonderful career at the Royal Ballet. She eventually graduated from the Royal Ballet School and founded her own company, the Gillian Lynn Dance Company, met Andrew Lloyd Webber. She's been responsible for some of the most successful musical theater productions in history. She's given pleasure to millions. She's a multimillionaire. Someone else might have put her on medication and told her to calm down. That's the punchline. That's the punchline. Put her on medication and told her to calm down. So uh, just again, that theme, we can't try to fit kids into the same mold. We need to facilitate their strengths, their interests, keep it fun, play-centered, and let them blossom into what they're blossoming into, what they their muse they want to follow. Right. It's like get out of the way. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, you also need, I mean, this is where I think of, dropping the whole teacher taught um, laying on of culture and so on and so forth and just think about what is in each person and and making sure we're getting all of it that's where the see the division of labor can can kill somebody a little kid can you know over practice on one instrument and get to be virtuosic and then not know what to do with it. So we, we I think, as guides, uh, you teaching English as a second language, Johnny teaching, doing the toddler jam, th that spirit of jamming, of let's see what happens, 
let's who, who wants to pick up which instrument well this is the third time she's gone for that um, xylophone over there or she's picked up on the synthesizer and wants to see what she can make come out of this just you follow the lead of the kid exactly and s- magical things can happen you can learn so much from a student yep you know as a teacher you you also have to learn from them maybe this is the time to tell my little lily story 10 months old afro my daughter had i guess worked with her quite a bit about um ooh ee ooh ah ah wing wang walla walla bing bang because she says to lily who is busy just learning to walk at 10 months you know she's crawling taking a few steps boat back down to the floor crawling faster than she can walk she's over undoing drawers taking things out of drawers putting them back into drawers it's time to clean up oh cleaning up is good yes i can get to put things back in drawers you know what i mean she was enthusiastic about everything and afro says come come over here lily i want to show grampy something and so she sings ooh ee ooh and lily like white on rice Timing perfect at 10 months. Ah, ah. Ooh, ee, ooh. Ah, ah. She's on it. Her timing, not off by a a millionth of a second. Wing, wang, walla, walla, bing, bang. Ooh, ee, ooh. Ah, ah. She's on it. I said, wow. Timing at 10 months. Who knew? I said, where do you think this happened from? She said, well, she hangs from that basket with the two hooks on the door jam. And I put on Wilson Pickett, and she bounces in time. You know, she's not walking yet, but she's bouncing in time to the Wilson Pickett album. She says, I think somewhere in there is when I tried the ooh-ee-ooh-ah-ah a couple of weeks ago, and she, she got on it. I said, she sure is on it. We go around again, silence, because we're talking about her, right? Mm-hmm. She knows that we're... It's, doesn't do anything. And we both, Afro and I, pause for about 30 seconds. No ah-ah. Uh, uh. Absence of ah-ah. Uh, uh. As a statement of Lily, you know, I'm not going to be your little performer at 10 months. You know what I mean? And then we did, I said, Lily, give it, give, put something else in there. But at the same time, ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah! And she gives you the Wilson oh. Pickett scream, you know, or the... It, I don't know. I, from that one little incident, which was all of a minute or two, you know, of just time passing, I came to the conclusion that every kid at 10 months or 9 months or 11 months, toddler jam, pre-toddler, before they toddle, let's help them bounce in the, in the chair. Let's help them hear all the danceable music that there is. Let's help them. So there's plenty of helping to do, and teachers or Let's call them guides, guides, yeah. soul guides, spirit guides. Here's how. Here's how to help you get into the mood, get into the spirit of it, have fun with it. We we've gotten somewhere, and it's frustrating as hell to me that whatever I put on the web in the way of Born to Groove material, and I'd urge anybody listening to this to go to our Born to Groove um, dot org website where we have videos and audios that are designed to help a mother and a child get into a groove one way or another with a guero or with a shaker or with a a drum 
I hope people would go to it and tell me why it's not working. What would be a better opening? When you got when we have another virus come through, and there's going to be more until we stop invading the rainforests and stop factory farming, until we stop monocropping the world or exploiting it in mono ways, we're gonna we're gonna be keep having viruses come through. When that happens, what do you? That's where I hope the Born to Groove website. That's exactly what it's for: is to facilitate two or three people getting live with it. And, and celebrating whatever that little kid is about to become the next day. How do we make this work? Because it's not working well for people right now. I don't get any tips in the tip jar. Some months pass before somebody puts something in there. I want to encourage you two guys to go, preferably with a mom and a kid or some, 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 some kid who wants to, might want to pick up on it, if you do. Um, to see what's wrong with the little stimuli that we got there. Maybe we should put it in Spanish. Put it. I would love to get it. My dream is to get it to China, South Korea, and Japan, where there are a lot of women sitting home with a new newborn or a kid, and dad is climbing the social ladder or salary man, as they say in Japan, who not only works 10-hour day but then parties with the same people that he's been working with they go out at night and party, and then they come home. Mom gets to see the husband, you know, time to make a new baby, or, you know, breakfast, boom, they're gone again. So those moms are sitting at home in China, Japan, My South th- Korea, and we could give them this if, it would do, if we could only figure out how to get it to work. It's a t- I think it, that's, I'm not saying it's, it's a, non, a non-starter, but I'm saying, in my experience, having taught, at this point, I've taught 1,500 different Chinese students English. Yeah. And I ask many of them about their hobbies, almost all of them, anyone who can string together a little idea. I ask them about their hobbies. I ask them about if they play instruments. And 99 times out of 100, they are forced to play uh prestige instruments they're forced to play violin and piano classical violin and Mm -hmm. classical piano and they're often sent to boot camps in the summer so i have students who play eight hours a day they go to a school every day for two months and it's eight hours a day of classical piano and these kids are having like like nervous breakdowns almost because they have their big piano i'm talking about eight nine-year-olds yeah who are under immense stress to level up all right i'm in level six i have to be in level seven next year i have my big piano recital my big exam it's insanity wow it's the opposite and and, and more often than not they hate it yeah they don't like playing violin they don't like playing piano it's 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 a sad it's a sad state of affairs. So you how do you to, change that paradigm? I don't know. You have to keep it fun. It's yep. a tough cultural code. The to kids crack. are going to have to sneak up on it, maybe. Interesting that their parents prioritize European music so much. Guys, I have a you know, wonderful story, but let's we'll save it for the next next hour. Well, how are we doing for time? We are at forty-seven minutes. Good. This has been a hell of a good discussion. This yeah, has been this a good, good one. one. Yeah, and 
we can just continue it for the next time. The th- the story I wanted to tell immediately was giving. I got to give a lecture to the entire Beijing Philharmonic Orchestra. This was arranged for me by the cr- the family of Crooks. You know, David Crook and his wife Isabel. They had oh, been I thought there. you meant like <laughs> no. That, that was their name. That was their name. I'm sure they're both gone by now, but their their children live on, and they were born in China. No Chinese better than they know English, but they know both languages perfectly well. I had a one of um, Professor Crook at the Foreign Language Institute. His son was doing the translation, and I had a presentation that I was making wherever I was asked to do it on American music, and I did country and western, Afro-American soul music, gospel music, blues, jazz examples from different eras you know and i explained how these different musics had evolved as people's music what year are we in here this is 1980 okay and i was there for a couple of months and got to know i was going to the philharmonic to get lessons on the double reed sona or zorna in greek a double reed instrument that has been crucial from ancient greece to the present time and it went all the way across the silk road to China, to Japan, it ended up as a little instrument that noodle peddlers play to advertise that the noodles are coming. That was it sort of trailed off there. And in the hichiriki, the little double reed that they play in the court. So it got to be, you know, a crazy specialty in Japan and court music. Can I but, can I interject quick? Yeah. I just want to say one little thing that I thought was funny. That there's like a noodle <laughs> that there's like a noodle <laughs> instrument. In Spain, there's like a little pan flute that knife sharpeners use. Wow. Yeah. You hear it? It's like a they just do a sweep. They just do like a Yeah. Yeah. And you know the knife sharpeners outside. Wow. Then he yeah. goes town to town like that with his flute. Yeah. Sorry. See Romani, gypsies all over Europe are using different vocal techniques through a loudspeaker or playing bazooki music in Greece or you know they play the local music or something that they know will say, oh that's the gypsy peddler of watermelons or of uh, peponia melons of all kinds or that's the somebody so this kind of musical ident watermelon man Herbie Hancock explains it as something that he heard a woman singing or the the, the watermelon man was singing it to people in balconies in New Orleans or something. Hmm. So this little signature thing is great. Anyway, I could tell you all kinds of stories about China, but doing the Beijing Philharmonic, I gave my little talk and said, you know, I can't seem to find people's music in the People's Republic. I can only see conservatory music, hmm. the privileged aristocratic instruments, the Xing, the, you know, the uh, equivalent of the koto in Japan is a big instrument in China for getting in touch with the ancestral traditions. And I'm saying I'm seeing all kinds of music that's highly prioritized, but I don't hear much people's music, mm-hmm. what people actually want to sing to each other in the streets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of this talk, which I said I was critical of bourgeois music, I said, it's wonderful to have a debate on Debussy as to whether he was decadent or not and to have a symphony orchestra here to play all that music. But I said, it's not people's music. It's not from the bottom up. It's not your traditional music responding to modern conditions and so on and so forth. The conductor of the orchestra, who was a famous dude in China back then, 
got up and gave me a talking to that I will, you know, I got it in translation back from Leon Crook. And he was outraged that I would challenge the hegemony of bourgeois music. He said, China must have a symphony orchestra in every major city if we're going to have factory production, if we're going to have modernization, if we're going to have make products that are equal to any products made in the world, if we're going to become economically viable as a country, if we're going to have a future at all, we must have symphony orchestras and they must have the discipline of, you know, four four, um, elements to a symphony. It's part of the, like, industrialization, westernization package. If we can't get the symphony orchestras to prosper in Japan and be full of great violinists and cellists and so on, if we can't do that, we'll never be modern. We'll never catch up to the West. We will never have any kind of a role to play in world history. You're saying that we should just give up all these things and and just sing for the fun of it? No way is this possible. You know, you threaten our our very existence as a people. You you know, I think that's what he was saying. You know, they, they couldn't take time to translate all of it. But I think I got dressed down, but good. Wow. As, uh, you know, someone who was subversive of... Good for you, Chuck. The, <laughs> I'm glad you were there speaking to them. I would love to get a recording of this. I'm, I'm sure it was recorded. Can you concede... It's, it's probably in a vault somewhere. Like, Can you we'll concede any of his points? No. I mean, I've come over the last 20 years since I retired and don't have to like all music to be a credible professor. I've come to really hate bourgeois music all of it huh. except you know as you go back from beethoven and so on to, beethoven was an improvising piano player did you guys know that i did not know that i didn't know it until of alex ross piece in the new yorker of about a month and a half ago two months ago where this uh, wonderful piano player who's you know acclaimed as the 30 year old genius of Western piano playing. He's the long, long of, of Europe. Uh, he is, oh, we got to think about time running out. Yes. We can pick this up another time. But this is why I dislike Western music. And I think this guy is coming to the same conclusion, this genius piano player. He's done all the Beethoven piano things. He knows that Beethoven was an improviser. He loves Theolonius Monk's compositions and improvisations he's ripe to turn his back on the whole thing and just woodshed for a couple of years and come up with his own beethoven symphonies you know or his own uh piano uh creations and i think he's at the brink of doing that he's he says i'm bored that's point number three yeah search for new ideas and new tests for old ideas right i think he's that this is a great quote isn't it yep Mm mm-hmm because it applies across the board in any yeah, specialized you can, field. You can understand so many things to it. Yeah. I also wanted to say, John, in some way, I feel like you're doing all three. Yeah. Johnny is. Specialize in a group of organisms, specialize in technique, and search for new ideas. And Zach, what you said told me about the situation in China now. Mm. Uh, people forced to do the through composed virtuosic blah 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 read have to read music literacy 
you got to read this, this chapter by Alan Farmello in Born to Groove that takes apart the five things that are oppressive about Western music and realize that this is one-tenth of one percent of the world's music is written. All the old peoples of the world, 2,000 mm. tribes in Africa and hundreds of different cultures in the Philippines and so on, they're all not doing literacy, virtuosity, you know, any of those things that are prized by, um, by uh, you know, the West. Oops, sorry. Well, that was a great discussion. Thank you, Charlie. Ch- thank you, Zach. Thank you, John. We'll see you next week for On the Path. Mm-hmm.